It usually takes the National Institute of Standards and Technology at least a few months to update its cybersecurity guidelines. But in response to a major vulnerability, NIST is looking to add a new control to federal cyber standards within just a few weeks. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the manager of NIST's Security Engineering and Risk Management Group, Victoria Pilateri. We're issuing a patch release for 853. So we recognize the importance of both stability and agility in our guidance. And we want to be able to provide up-to-date guidance and frameworks in user-friendly and machine-readable format. This patch release, using our new comment tool and our cybersecurity and privacy reference tool, allows us to include minor changes that don't impact the technical comment, so can just promote more machine readability of the data set helps us clean up a few editorial and grammatical errors that we might have caught along the way and is helping us address a newly discovered vulnerability where we actually had a gap in the controls. So, you know, historically, NIST has gone through, you know, long drafting periods and done a very, you know, 30, 60, 90 day public comment on our guidelines. Really, given the severity of this vulnerability, the time to act is now. So we've developed this really cool tool. It allows us to have better engagement with our user community. It allows users to provide feedback on the published controls anytime from the comfort of your own computer or mobile device. And it allows us to do an expedited comment period. So we're still doing our entire public comment period, but we've cut it down to two weeks. And we're doing this by just focusing on the one control we're making a substantive change to. So instead of having to go through the entire catalog of controls, trying to identify what's what's new, what's different, it's straight out in front of you. You click one link and you can see the proposed new control and the two new control enhancements. And you can provide comments back to NIST. Got it. All right. Yeah, I definitely want to dig into the kind of dynamic process here with, with the releases and the commenting and, and such. I, but I, I do want to take a step back and just talk about the, you know, I think you call it a pretty severe vulnerability that you wanted to patch here. Can you just explain what that is and how you are patching it with this release? Well, we're proposing one new control and two supporting control enhancements. In the past, I think, I guess it's been like a month and a half or so. Uh, there's been a vulnerability related to identity and access management systems. NIST realized that even in our really robust catalog of security and privacy controls, that we had an area that we could have gone into more detail and provided more guidance or control to help our entire user community manage this risk. So we're proposing to add one new control and two supporting control enhancements to the identification and authentication, the IA control family. This would be a new control, so we'd tack it onto the end, and it would be IA13, Identity Providers and Authorization Servers. So this would provide guidance, outcome-based guidance, to focus on how to better protect identity providers and authorization servers to manage user device and non-person entity, identities, attributes, and access rights. So basically, we're looking to support better authentication and authorization decisions. The two control enhancements that we're proposing are focused on the protection of cryptographic keys in the context of identity providers and authorization servers, as well as the verification of access tokens and identity assertions. 
So we've seen a lot of identity and authentication misconfigurations and vulnerabilities crop up this past year, including the Microsoft incident, you know, over the summer that affected several federal agencies. Is that what we're getting at here with this patch release and the the vulnerabilities that you're referencing? So while we won't call out a specific vendor or implementation or instance, this broadly is an issue. And this was identified as a gap that we had in our control catalog. You know, we're doing a lot of work to improve our identity related guidance. And as that drafting team was working on their research, they they also brought this to our attention. So, you you know, there's no time like the present to, to address this and leverage some of the really cool and innovative tools that NIST is coming out with to better you know, promote our work, to better get engagement from our user community, and ultimately to better provide better cybersecurity and privacy resources for the community at large. And you know, generally, how has 853 addressed these issues in the past? And what should folks know about these specific controls that are being proposed today at, at a high level? You know, is this going to be a difficult thing to implement or is this going to I, I assume this is going to flow pretty seamlessly into their, you know, NIST 853 implementations and how they can you know, address that issue going forward? Well, first and foremost, you know, we're just opening a public comment period on these this proposed control and the two control enhancements. So we're really looking forward to getting that broader feedback from the entire user community. You might see some changes between now and when we plan to issue this patch release in the November timeframe. But assuming this does move forward, you know, the first thing is we've decided to not include these controls in any control baseline, which means they wouldn't be, quote unquote, required right away. However, like the entire 853 catalog, these are good security and privacy outcomes that organizations can elect to select and implement if that helps them manage their risk. So we're not saying you have to do it, but it's, it's good advice, right? <laughs> And yeah, we've talked about this expedited comment process and and how you're issuing this, you know, urgent patch release. You don't have to go through this really lengthy comment period, but there's still going to be that transparency with the comments and folks can can really dig into this. Can you talk about how that's a um, maybe a bit of a a new development? I don't know if it is a new development for NIST or, or specifically with 853. Is Is this something that you see being part of the process going forward to really address these issues as they crop up? So NIST has heard feedback from our user community that sometimes we're too slow to issue updates to our guidelines, and there's always an opportunity for improvement. So we heard that feedback, and we took some really big action. We've developed an online tool that allows our user community to submit comments on published controls anytime, 24-7 at your convenience. We will still hold public comment periods on the equivalent of draft publications that allow our user community to provide feedback on controls or control enhancements or changes that we've proposed to the control catalog itself. That's Victoria Pilateri, manager of NIST Security Engineering and Risk Management Group, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Find more of Justin's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. 
Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. 
So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.